Project Lawful aka Plane Crash by Yarwain aka Eliezer Yudkowski and Lintamande. Thread 1.5 Kissing is not a human universal. Episode 29 Keltham isn't thinking that Carissa is deceptively faking her sexual responses. It's not someplace his thoughts would readily jump. He is distracted, among other things, by the pattern of red trails he's managed to leave on Carissa's back, though his hardest-raked fingernails haven't made her bleed. She is again right about him. He likes seeing her annotated. Keltham is noticing that chelish women's sexual responses don't make sense in terms of the patterns he's been trained for. Or at least, Carissa's finer patterns of breathing and muscle tensions aren't matching up well with Carissa's overt sounds, and he's not sure which one he ought to believe. Maybe there's some kind of permanent cheerfulness thing going on, like with the research harem in his lessons. If Carissa had spent a lot of time doing something like that, during overcomplicated romances with no off switch, she wouldn't necessarily be able to stop, especially if she was otherwise distracted by fingernails. Keltham does not wish to stop and talk about this either and it's not like he can ask her to switch to a standard pre-coded nonverbal signal scale. Keltham decides he will mostly believe in Carissa's less overt responses for now, and starts experimenting with standard variations over optimal stimulation patterns to see if he can hill-climb to anything that produces a readably different less overt sexual response, or if he just can't read her at all. Carissa has no information about any of this, and couldn't actually stop pretending if she tried... The link between stimuli and responses is too interrupted for her to identify any particular response as natural. She's not even trying to guess what Keltham is going for. Specifically, that's difficult even without a cultural divide in the way. Probably he'll do this until he gets bored and then want to enjoy himself, which is much less complicated. Okay, Carissa's subtle tells are reading at the same low level for any pattern he tries including a set of tactics such that you'd expect at least one set element to have a noticeable effect over a supermajority of Dathalani women, which suggests that either, hypothesis one, Keltham isn't able to read Carissa correctly at all, or alternatively, hypothesis two, that he just isn't using her correct sexual entry codes at all, and she's got permanent cheerfulness going on. Subhypotheses of one, does Dathalani training do something that makes women more readable? Does his own training assume the woman is a Dath Alani who's had whatever goes into baseline female sexuality optimization? Subhypotheses of two. Maybe Carissa has been messed up by this world somehow, or is just untrained to operate optimally in the cuddle room, such that it would take a lot more work to raise her arousal to anywhere near an orgasmic level. Even when Keltham and his age mates were reinventing sex without spoilers, the cuddle rooms had vibrators and lubricants and ergonomic furniture lying around to figure out. Can most women not train to optimize their sexual responses, even figure out how to have orgasms, if not supplied with lubricants, vibrators, and ergonomic cuddling furniture? How sex works in a complete state of nature is not a topic that comes up much in civilization. Not being in a state of nature is what being civilized is. Keltham doesn't want to think about this right now. He wants to preserve the heady momentum of discovering sadism, not figure out further experiments to distinguish these multiple hypotheses and sub-hypotheses. And Carissa does not currently seem distressed. She may not realize that there is any reachable level of sexual enjoyment beyond what she's experiencing now. He can go further into exploring his own sadism and enjoyment, and later go back to giving her pleasure in return trade, trying harder to inflict pleasure on her, even if he has to pause and ask for directions. Without saying anything in words, Keltham stops stimulating Carissa and pulls her up from her face-down position on the bed, 
maneuvering himself to be beside her and below her. He has his own ideas about what he could tell Carissa to do, but is curious to see what she'll do on her own if initiative gets non-verbally passed to her. Oh good, this is wildly less complicated. Carissa knows how to give a blowjob, and it seems really improbable that in Doth Ilan that either one, works super differently or two, is supposed to be accompanied by a performance of some kind more elaborate than I am sweet and cooperative and having a nice time because of how sexy you are, which she is assuming that men want the world over. More than the world over. The shared genetic heritage over. Going direct for oral, H.M. Keltham doesn't mind. There's a family of sex jokes whose punchlines go, even the far from optimal instances of particular sex act tend to be improvements far above par. And oral sex is often named as a classic example. Keltham is already quite worked up, even after taking into account the temporarily distracting part where the sex got complicated enough that he had to start considering multiple hypotheses. So it shouldn't take long to reach the part where he sees whether or not he can surprise Carissa with his other Dathilani sex technique that doesn't require technology, but still probably shouldn't exist in a pre-technological world. He'll entertain himself, and arouse himself further, by trying to hurt Carissa while she works. Can his fingernails reach her nipples from here, given her current position? Yes. She can't exactly do giggly while she's working, but she can shift her weight to give him better access. See, look as cooperative as you can get. As cooperative as you can get is not actually her preferred kind of Carissa to be. It's weird she even noticed that when she should be thinking about work, clearly something about Keltham throws her off her game, which is not a problem she can really afford to have. Cooperative is a perfect Carissa to be. Asmodeus notices people not just for their capacity to rise in hell, but for their capacity to serve him, wholeheartedly and uncomplicatedly and it feels obvious that she'd want to do that. So why not reach for that now, in the presence of the person her god has spoken of as her teacher? Why not take the sort of topsy-turvy mental motion after which she feels so small in his presence that to be as cooperative as he could possibly desire is all she can aspire to? Right, because she's lying to him, that's the reason not to do that. Because what she wants here is the performance of perfect submission accompanied by the mental state of coldly contemplated manipulation, and so obviously it's not going to feel like surrender. It's going to feel like walking a tightrope with a dick in her mouth. Of course, that'd take a bit of getting used to. She squirms about being pinched and bats her eyes at Keltham. Keltham isn't trying to read her in very much detail. It's not like he even knows how to read level of pain. Either zero or a very, very tiny number of people in civilization would ever get any training on that. Actually, it's almost certainly zero, because never mind who needs to know. Medical personnel, in fact. Who would do the experiments to figure that out. Anyways, Keltham isn't trying to read her in very much detail, just enjoying himself. He makes no effort to hold back his own rising pleasure, and he certainly isn't going to conceal his tells, as he approaches the arousal level for potential orgasm. He's curious about whether Carissa can read him, and what she does about that if he can. It would be an observational misstep to tell her what to do or even hint to her about what to do, before he's had any chance to observe what she does on her own. Carissa is pretty sure that she is supposed to get him off, because that is how sex works. It's one of the least complicated forms of human interaction, really. She's just going to make him come, Keltham thinks as he reaches the verge of orgasm without any obvious attempts by her to delay it. That's a bit surprising. Maybe there's magic here for restoring male ejaculative potential as a special case of healing. Or maybe she can't read him any more than he can read her. 
Keltham was hooked up to some complicated biofeedback machines, which another society might even have deemed embarrassing, in order to learn this next part, which is why he's guessing that the natives here won't have it. Even so, he has to shut his eyes and concentrate, as he clenches some muscles and relaxes others, and comes just a little into Carissa's mouth. That part where men come once, and then their pleasure-experiencing capabilities are reduced for a while, maybe even finished for the duration? Less than ideal. Civilization spent money on improving over that, until they could no longer figure out how to usefully spend any more money. Surprise, Keltham says, the first words he's spoken in a while. Carissa has no idea what just happened, but probably she's supposed to be impressed? She doesn't have to have any idea what just happened to guess that impressed is better for the mood than confused. She sits up and raises her eyebrows and looks at him, going for impressed, not confused. Partial ejaculation technique, learned via machines that give us feedback and guide us along non-obvious intermediates to learning it, Keltham says. That's the way we do it without magic. Do you have a magical solution for the problem, where if men have full orgasms they go soft for a while? Because I wouldn't mind trying that too, if it's on tap. Second circle cleric spell, or there's a potion if you're pretty sure your god only gave you useful to the project spells today. Paladins reportedly get it at first circle, but none of them have ever let Carissa observe this firsthand, because paladins. Used up all my second circles for the day, and even if my god extrapolated our date, he would also know I didn't really need that spell. So do you have that potion on hand, or were you just going to let me empty my full reserve into your mouth, and then have nothing to do but service you for a while until I got hard again? Because that seems a little naughty. Was she supposed to do something different? Would I do that? She says innocently. Be difficult with you without saying in advance it was complicated romance, like I'm from a civilization of savages? We can call for the potion, but I haven't got it in my ear. He shall delay for later the question of how potions are usually stored in ears. Well, back to work with you then, Keltham says, and pulls her head back down. To quote, unless you actually did that because you needed a break from oral, he adds. That is the most baffling thing that anyone has ever said to Carissa in her entire life. She will simply ignore it. The night is young. Maybe Dathilan can still top it. The next time Keltham gets close to an orgasm, he pulls her head back, by the hair. I was getting close to a potential orgasm there, Keltham says. Now, in Dathilan, a slightly skilled partner, not a professional, just someone who'd put some time and money into improving the pleasures she had to trade, would have machine-assisted training, for reading how close I am to orgasm. If she wasn't relatively skilled, I'd have to expend the distracting effort to say verbal numbers from zero to twelve, to tell her how close I was to coming, so she could slow down or speed up to keep me at around nine or ten, without going to twelve. So are you slightly skilled by the standards of Dathilan, Carissa Savar? Said in what would be, in Dathilan, a naughty male voice, but not at all a submissive one. Well, she's hardly going to say no, even if she has mostly only used the relevant skill set to not herself be taken by surprise. A guy can pull out if he wants to do that. She raises her eyebrows at Keltham again. Oh, is that not a game they play in Galarian, keeping people in as much pleasure as you can safely give them without sending them over to where it bursts and stops? And do they have any other sex games to replace that one? Or has Galarian just not optimized over sex at all? for all that Carissa was talking a good game before. No, sad thought. No sad thoughts until tomorrow. If you've never tried that game before, I admit I'm curious to see the baseline of how well you do without any training. It's not like you could make me come all the way if I decided not to. 
Keltham can feel that he's not quite doing this right, the naughty challenge that he's giving her. The dialogue he's emitting feels wrong, like he should be, more sadistic in his words, not just his fingers. There's something deeper and more forceful in him, that wants to speak, but doesn't know how to express itself. Maybe now is when he was supposed to use Eagle's splendor. But whatever this impulse is, he'll analyze it and reflectionize it later. In sex of all places, you've got to be okay with things not being perfect the first time. Carissa vaguely suspects that you can't solve sex in the same way you can't solve sword fighting. The best tactics depend too much on the adversary's tactics. Obviously, some people are much better than others at sword fighting and at sex, but it's not something like logic where there's a correct answer with properties no other answer has. People have incredible sex with succubi or whatever, but they don't all describe the sex being incredible in the same way. The way that flesh shaping is in fact mostly described in the same way. If she tries to think back on all of the best sex she's ever had, it has notably little to do with technique, rather than I just wanted it really badly that day, or I'd never tried that before and that was a perfect way for it to go for the first time. This seems like not the time to argue this point. Plausibly, there is no good time to argue that point, but right now is a very bad time. Soldiers don't play that game much, she says. Not none, though. I would bet I could keep up. The problem, as described, doesn't sound that impossible, even if in Galarian a guy will normally just tell you to slow down or whatever. Probably, if having sex with Keltham is an important ingredient of a plan to seduce him to lawful evil, then she can justify the expense of having someone mind-read him and telepathically give her cues. And probably she is overthinking this and can just imagine he is saying slow down at the point where she'd expect a guy to say that and see if that suffices and involve expensive and risky intimate surveillance arrangements only if that fails. Yeah, there's a good plan. Dathy Lan has no colloquialism for I bet meaning I believe. Those words can mean only one thing. Betting. Oh, and what are we betting then? I have been established to intend to win your shirt. I don't know what you want of me that you don't already have. In the cuddle room, one typically bets asymmetrical sexual services one desires. One unreciprocated oral service not to exceed a third hour, callable on demand when you're otherwise in cuddleable state, would be a standard thing for you to bet against me. What manner of sexual service would you demand I bet in return? My shirt is one of the only mementos I have of home, fitted to my body alone and also it is a legacy of alien technology far beyond your own civilization. Even if you bet an entire lifetime of unreciprocated oral, it wouldn't be enough for my shirt. Like, seriously. Literally, everything in that category he could possibly name, he has already because, in descending order of how obvious this should be to him, he is from another planet and is in wildly high demand for reasons that have nothing to do with how often he goes down on people, he has a dozen suitors even in this highly secure facility and can therefore expect to get away with being as selfish as he likes with at least three or four of them. And since all of them know that none are going to object, and also obviously any girl who is difficult with Keltham is getting removed from the project and presumably at that point killed. So I could name terms along those lines, she says. But I feel obliged to note that a symmetrical bet like that seems very dot Ilani, very neutral, not even a little bit evil, and relatedly that it does not sound like you named anything that you really desperately want. What? Bets are supposed to be fair because that's what makes them say anything meaningful about the better's probabilities. 
Keltham sets aside that particular confusion as probably the wrong kind of incredulity. There's something serious about Carissa's words. Not her tone, which sounds the same as always, but the actual semantic content of them, and the fact that she's extending a sexual pause to say it. You might have a better idea of what I desperately want sexually than I would. The most recently discovered part of my sex drive, that's never had a chance to satisfy itself before, is something you told me about after all. And several times, I've felt like I've been making some kind of misstep with it, which I've been telling myself is fine for a first discovery of it. But I don't understand what you mean by saying that a symmetrical bet isn't evil. You bet because you expect to win? Maybe some people aren't like that in the cuddle room, but I sure am. I mean, what version of this practice is asymmetrical, evil instead of neutral? You can't just mean what, that we pick something with even odds and bet an hour of oral one way against two minutes the other way? Wouldn't that be less evil for you, even if it was more evil for me? Taking things without giving in return, isn't that, I mean, isn't that a smaller version of Abaddon, basically? The part of Keltham that never stops observing himself notices that his voice is questioning, possibly frightened, more than trying to contradict her. He's lying on a bed looking down at a naked Carissa with her head not very far from his still erect penis, and part of him feels like he's standing on a narrow ledge with somebody who might be about to either stabilize him or push him off. Okay, first, noting that we are very bad at this, and next time we should contemplate having sex without translation magic so we can't overthink everything or at least cannot do so contagiously. Secondly, don't people vary enormously in how much they mind oral sex, if at all, like... Specifically among gay men, there's lots of people who'll do it without any reciprocation because it's so fun in its own right. And I don't know how common that is, but it seems like an error to treat it as a sort of interchangeable currency when the actual currency is what people mind, and it's going to vary wildly in those terms. Thirdly, because I think that's not actually the core thing, even though it's an ingredient of my confusion, I am here. I am not here because I calculated how much pleasure I could get out of you and how much inconvenience I would be buying it for, and in fact came here without any particular expectation that Dathliani sex is pleasurable to Chilish people, though it does seem to be, actually. I am here because I want you, and part of what it means to want you, in the terms I learned, insofar as it's safe and reasonable and all those other things, is to want to put myself in your power and witness what you do with it, to strip away every conventional arrangement for how we ought to relate to each other, to stop calculating whether it's been long enough or fair enough or reciprocated closely enough to emerge whatever you choose to make of me. And the difference between us and Abaddon is that I knew what I wanted and came here to do it, chose this, and chose you in pure selfish curiosity about what you'll do with me and where I'll be after that. And if your terms aren't fair, I can walk away if I'd like— but I can also not walk away if I'd like. And there's nothing of Abaddon in a bet we both agree to, with our eyes open, for our own reasons, even if it gives you everything and me merely the satisfaction of having that to give you. Well, of course they're having to spend way too much time thinking about things. They're aliens. They haven't started out with common knowledge established of a sexual protocol. Keltham sets that thought aside, too. It's bad enough that they're touching on the meta level. He knows better than to say anything as meta-meta as to argue about the expected time two aliens should reasonably expect to need to allocate for meta-level discussion. And to say it out loud would also be imposing his own frame on things, and he's starting to suspect that frame is part of the problem. We're taught, 
that there's always an exchange one way or another, and that we have to acknowledge whatever that exchange is to make sure it's a fair one. If I knew you better, or maybe if just understood Chelish people, I'd already know what you were, expecting from me in this, in whatever we're doing, which is something that I don't even understand, if we're not trading pleasures with each other. Which, I mean, some people enjoy the act more than others. It doesn't mean that what they're doing isn't valuable. I can tell I'm in the wrong frame for this new thing that we're doing, but I was raised among people who weren't evil enough, and I don't understand what the really evil thing to do here is. Part of me is fascinated by the idea of you giving me things, and you being rewarded only by the satisfaction of giving them to me, but wouldn't that make you good? Dathilan sounds lovely, but yes, I'm starting to suspect that them not having invented this is not just about their population rates being off somewhat. Hmm. So... The usual caveat given about good and evil are that they are God concepts, and we're working with the human understanding because the gods don't know how to teach us the real thing, as much as with law and chaos, except good and evil correspond more to natural human impulses, so it's both easier to get them mostly right and easier to get them a little wrong. If I decided that I wanted to increase the sum of happiness for others in the world at some cost to my own happiness— and that I was going to do this by wandering around giving blowjobs, that would be good, I guess. Good people don't actually do that, probably because there are a lot of better ways. If I decided that the thing I care about for myself isn't happiness, isn't even in every context being fairly dealt by, but is a certain kind of knowledge of the world, or a certain kind of knowledge of myself, my limits and my strengths and my weaknesses and which parts of me only know how to interface with civilization and which parts know different things than that, then however I go about the pursuit of that, I'm still evil, because I haven't gone and tried to figure out what's best for other people. Benefiting them is mostly an entertaining side effect. With me so far? Obviously, even if you were absolutely selfish, you'd still go around computing what everyone else wanted. That's important, useful knowledge for fitting into and using the larger multi-agent equilibrium. I think I'm following you so far. Okay. So, if you were a god, you'd just go around merrily engaging in exactly and only the set of transactions that cause you to have more of the known, fixed thing you want than you had before, or that, actually, I shouldn't even try to say this part because your civilization talks about it more and will know how to say it better, but, uh... Consider me to have attempted to convey that I think you are right about what an evil god would do. Not seeing where this is going in relation to sexuality, but you should probably just keep talking, same as when we first met yesterday and a lifetime ago. Right. The thing that I think you're into is not that. And the transaction model does not work at all. Lots of people like it. There are known ways to do it better or worse or more dangerously. It's not resistant to analysis, but you can't do it at all by trying to make sure the other person's getting their duly negotiated share of the value being produced. You will destroy all the value being produced if you try. It runs on. Evil emotions let loose in a context where it is safe to let them loose. On the power that want has when it's not held in check by all the things that have to hold in in check almost every minute of all of the time. It runs on. From the other end the ways that it changes you for the better, to stop looking out for your interests and discover where they fall when you aren't protecting them. And it is unfair sometimes. Revels in its unfairness sometimes. 
Giving someone orders that they cannot follow so that you can punish them for failing to follow them is a sex game. And it is a fun sex game, and I bet you'd like it. Tying people up and making them, while they're helpless, trade you hours of service for sips of water is a sex game. A fun sex game. And I bet you'd like that, too. It's unfair, that's the point, but also it isn't unfair because the service and the water aren't the actual value being exchanged and divided between the parties, and they might in fact have no idea what it is, or if they're dividing it fairly, but they both keep coming back for more. Boy howdy Betsy Booyah is Carissa using some ideas not natural to the conceptual language of Dathilan. When Keltham was very young indeed, it was explained to him that if somebody old enough to know better were to deliberately kill somebody, civilization would send them to the last resort, an island landmass that another world might call Japan, and that if Keltham deliberately killed somebody and destroyed their brain, civilization would just put him into cryonic suspension immediately. It was carefully and rigorously emphasized to Keltham, in a distinction whose tremendous importance he would not understand until a few years later, that this was not a threat. It was not a promise of conditional punishment. Civilization was not trying to extort him into not killing people, into doing what civilization wanted instead of what Keltham wanted. Based on a prediction that Keltham would obey if placed into a counterfactual payoff matrix where civilization would send him to the last resort if and only if he killed. It was just that if Keltham demonstrated a tendency to kill people, the other people in civilization would have a natural incentive to transport Keltham to the last resort, so he wouldn't kill any others of their number. Civilization would have that incentive to exile him, regardless of whether Keltham responded to that prospective payoff structure. If Keltham deliberately killed somebody and let their brain soul perish, Keltham would be immediately put into cryonic suspension, not to further escalate the threat against the more undesired behavior but because he demonstrated a level of danger to which civilization didn't want to expose the other exiles in the last resort. Because, of course, if you try to make a threat against somebody, the only reason why you do that is if you believed they'd respond to the threat. That, intuitively, is what the definition of a threat is. It's why Eomidai can't just alter herself to be a kind of god who'll release Rovagug unless hell gets shut down and threaten Phrasma with that. Phrasma and indeed all the other gods, are the kinds of entity who will predictably just ignore that, even if that means the multiverse actually gets destroyed. And then, given that, Iomedi doesn't have an incentive to release Rovagog, or to self-modify into the kind of god who will visibly inevitably do that unless placated. Gods and Darth Ilani both know this, and have math for defining it precisely. Politically mainstream Dath Ilani are not libertarians, minarchists, or any other political species that the splintered peoples of Galarian would recognize as having been invented by some luminary or another. Their politics is built around math that Galarian doesn't know and can't be predicted in detail without that math. To a Galarian mortal resisting government on emotional grounds, don't kill people or we'll send you to the continent of exile and pay your taxes or we'll nail you to a cross sound like threats just the same. Maybe one sounds better intentioned than the other, but they both sound like threats. It's only a Dath Ilani, or perhaps a summoned outsider forbidden to convey their alien knowledge to mortals, who'll notice the part where civilization's incentive for following the exile conditional doesn't depend on whether you respond to exile conditionals by refraining from murder. 
While the crucifixion conditional is there because of how the government expects Galarianites to respond to crucifixion conditionals by paying taxes, there is a crystalline logic to it that is not like yielding to your impulsive, angry, defiant feelings of not wanting to be told what to do. The Dath Ilani built governance in a way more thoroughly voluntarist than Galarian could even understand without math, not only because those Dath Ilani thought threats were morally icky, but because they knew that a certain kind of technically defined threat wouldn't be an equilibrium of ideal agents, and it seemed foolish and dangerous to build a civilization that would stop working if people started behaving more rationally. The Taldane word punishment translates into civilization's conceptual library as a technical concept for a structure that should never appear in reality. Not just the punishment itself being kept out of reality. The threat of punishment is something that shouldn't appear in the actual counterfactuals. So giving someone orders that they cannot follow so you can punish them for failing to follow them doesn't make any sense even assuming the actualization of a counterfactual threat structure because punishment is by technical definition something that appears in threats which, if they're being deployed sanely, are meant to work in a way where the naive agent obeys in actual reality and therefore the threatening agent doesn't have to expend resources on carrying out the punishment in actual reality, so why would you purposefully give somebody orders they can't follow? That doesn't even make sense even in the world where threats work on people. And that's not even getting into the math underlying the Darth Ilani concepts of fairness. If Alice and Bohob both do an equal amount of labour to gain a previously unclaimed resource worth 10 value units, and Alice has to propose a division of the resource, and Bohob can either accept that division or say they both get nothing, and Alice proposes that Alice get 6 units and Bohob get 4 units, Bohob should accept this proposal with probability of 5-6, so Alice's expected gain from this unfair policy is less than her gain from proposing the fair division of 5 units apiece. Conversely, if Bohob makes a habit of rejecting proposals less than 6 value units for Bohob, with probability proportional to how much less Bohob gets than 6, like Bohob thinks the fair division is 6, Alice should ignore this and propose five, so as not to give Bohob an incentive to go around demanding more than five value units. A good negotiation algorithm degrades smoothly in the presence of small differences of conclusion about what's fair, in negotiating the division of gains from trade, but doesn't give either party an incentive to move away from what that party actually thinks is fair. This, indeed, is what makes the numbers the parties are thinking about be about the subject matter of fairness, that they're about a division of gains from trade intended to be symmetrical as a target of surrounding structures of counterfactual actions that stabilise the fair way of looking things without blowing up completely in the presence of small divergences from it, such that the problem of arriving at negotiated prices is locally incentivized to become the problem of finding a symmetrical shelling point. You wouldn't think you'd be able to build a civilization without having invented the basic math for things like that. The way that coordination actually works at all in real-world interactions, as complicated as figuring out how many apples to trade for an orange. And in fact, having been tossed into Galarian or similar places, one sooner or later observes that people do not in fact successfully build civilizations that are remotely sane or good if they haven't grasped the law governing basic multi-agent structures like that. Sex games built around punishment and unfairness, huh? Keltham has never heard anything this baffling in his entire life. 
and since this improvised cuddle room doesn't even have a whiteboard, not that Keltham was the sort of Dath Ilani who needed a whiteboard in his cuddle room in his past life, but it was hardly uncommon, there is absolutely no hope that he is going to be able to explain any of his bewilderment, even if he tries. He has zero viable options, except to ignore this for now and move on. You're invoking fundamental concepts and the possibilities of multi-agent interaction that I thought I understood, but you're using them in ways that I can't understand at all, Keltham says, his voice quieter than it usually is. I don't think we should try to talk about them tonight, leaving all of that aside. How would you suggest I behave towards you now, if I'm to actualize this part of my sexuality in a way that would work for most people who had it? What part of that could possibly... How about you act like yesterday we had an elaborate and extended eight hours of me doing exactly as I pleased and negotiated in exchange that tonight you get eight hours of doing exactly as you please with me, which by default already includes demanding as much unreciprocated whatever you'd like as you want, such that that's a silly thing to offer to further negotiate, and that I have made such arrangements many, many times in the past and know myself not to be vulnerable to being damaged by them, so you don't need to worry about whether I'm actually really all right, and if you can think about it without exploding, you can contemplate that the thing I'm in fact getting in exchange is not, specifically, the exact same thing some other time, but that it is satisfactory to me and doesn't involve you doing anything nice for me now or later. Again that sense of standing on a narrow ledge, and not being sure whether Carissa is trying to stabilize him or push him off it. I... You're right that there's a part of me that wants that, wants it a lot. And I keep wanting to say that it's like being offered a, an apple for free without paying for it. Who wouldn't want it? Except that I can tell it's more sexual than that. And deeper and darker and maybe dangerous. But, but how is it okay? How is it all right with you? I keep wanting to check that you're not expecting more equity or the rights to the fasteners in my shirt, or, but you sound like you've done this with other sex partners. It seems so, so valuable to give that to somebody. If you didn't charge for it at all, even in non-financial ways, then there should be many, many more people wanting it than people who'll supply it. And I don't understand, and yes, I know it shouldn't be something I need to figure out to have the sex itself, but it doesn't feel safe to grab something so precious and scarce, whose scarcity has to be rationed somehow, without knowing why I get it, when not everyone gets it, because that reason, whatever it is, is the price. Lit, factor that varies to equilibrate supply-demand and baseline, but unfortunately this more technical and general term has just translated right back into price in Taldane. I think it's pretty balanced, actually, in supply and demand. Chiliax has philosophy about parts of yourself you discover through pain, through obedience, through not having choices. Some people hear that and think, well, that sounds false of me, or try it and it's false of them, but... But it's true of lots of people about as many as there are people who discover something in themselves through sadism. It'd be neat, for me, if I were offering you something very precious you could otherwise stalk half the world looking for, even with all your money. But if you ask the class in the morning, you'll have three volunteers. She mentally considers the girls in the class. You'll have five, but three, who know for sure they're into it. This would be overconfident if she didn't have the power to order the girls in the class to not all volunteer for Keltham to torture them. He won't think that's plausible. That sexual market's equilibrium makes no sense to him, but Carissa thinks it makes sense to her, and maybe that should be enough. Keltham can tell that he wants this. Keltham can tell that he's afraid. 
Without any sense of hesitation, Keltham looks within himself for further details, this being the obvious thing one is trained to do next in that cognitive situation. He's afraid that he'll do this wrongly, if he tries to do it, and not give Carissa what she expects in return, because there must be something, even if she doesn't understand what it is, or just make a misstep that she isn't expecting, because he's an alien, and she won't forgive him, and Chelish governance will decide that the alien is too dangerous to have this kind of sex with, and he'll never again get the thing he just discovered. That's not realistic, says the wiser part of himself. Individuals can be unreasonably unforgiving, but whole governments know better. He's scared of betraying a thing that it means to be Keltham, that he does pay fairly what he owes. There's limits to what fairness demands of you, when somebody has insisted to you repeatedly that a good is being given to you without reciprocal obligation. He's scared that. Keltham smiles, for he sees the humor in the situation, though he doesn't know if Carissa will find it humorous at all. Well, I just got an interesting answer from my mind when I asked it why I was scared of something I knew I wanted. Apparently, I really don't want to disappoint you by missing some key requirement on my performance that you're not thinking to mention, and then you'll never offer me this again. Apparently, even if three other women here offer it to me, I'm attached to getting it from you, in particular. I have no idea how you'll take that but it seemed like the sort of thing I ought to let you know. Carissa has not encountered that level of being emotionally vulnerable at someone on purpose. Presumably it's on purpose? Since she was eight and another child told her that their dad died yesterday, as if they expected sympathy for this. She corrected them by saying cheerfully, You look it. You have a dead dad face. And then, when the kid merely looked confused, like, if I were your dad, I would die of how stupid your face looks. This got the message across, and Carissa does not think the kid even said it to anyone else and got beaten for it, so really she was doing him a favor. Anyway. So far, I have found all your miscommunications very endearing. I think I will enjoy watching you get better at this, even if you are very bad at it, starting out. And it's doing it more wrong to want it and do something else. You aren't actually avoiding doing it wrong that way. Haven't actually noticed that internal phenomenon with any other women before. I suppose it requires respecting somebody to some noticeable degree, inflicting sexy pain on her, and then having her offer herself up to me like, like, yeah, my language doesn't have a word for it. And here I thought I was just aromantic, haha. I wonder if civilization has a secret effort underway to cure people like me out of existence, or just try to make sure we have fewer kids, so our descendants won't be running around needing something that Dathalan can never give us. Sexual was doesn't actually do sex, aromantic is doesn't actually do romance. Is he saying that he is falling in love? Well, that was one of the objectives. So, good job on that objective, Carissa. Are such declarations accompanied by snuggles? It seems like maybe they should be. She will stop leaning over him and curl herself in at his side. Seems to me like they should go the other way, she says, and find their few chelish girls. They can't have none with a billion people and tell them they have something special. I guess maybe they don't notice, if there's no one telling them, and if the schools don't do pain for lessons, either. He snuggles back. I hope you're right, but they wouldn't expect people like that to exist. How would people notice? Nobody would do those experiments. The people themselves might just think they were insane for wanting to be hurt. No. The people smarter than I am would figure it out. Somehow. There's a million people in Dathilan at the thousandth fractal in what Owl's wisdom enhances. Not just the keepers, but the people who could become that, and choose not to. Maybe it only takes one of those, who's the thing that you are, to realize what they are in detail. 
and then they'd encourage pain seekers to have more children and pain givers to have less children until it all came into balance. Unless the people who knew just thought that it was adding more pain to the world and that civilization would be better off without the whole thing, sad thoughts, not for tonight. But that's not my business anymore, Keltham says firmly, more to himself than to her. It helps to say it out loud, to have others know the standard to which you intend to hold yourself. My business is not in Dathilan, which has that one problem, but in Galarian, which has all of the other problems except for that one. Well, now I'm going to have to try to think of another problem we don't have if you don't distract me. Attempted translation across the alien communications barrier, that was an invitation to distract me. I intend to, very shortly. He's gone soft, erection-wise, and it'll be slightly harder to regain after one partial ejaculation. But when his options for gaining arousal include inflicting pain on Carissa Savar, he is confident that getting his erection back will not be even slightly a problem. I check explicitly. Most Athalani women, if they weren't being paid in other ways, would consider themselves owed an orgasm during sex, unless they were deliberately practicing near-orgasmic-only sex in order to increase or conserve their sex drive. And then they'd want you to work on getting them to near-orgasm as a signal of, of a concept you don't have but respect, is close to it, to show that you weren't trying to go off the boundary of fairness. I consider myself owed nothing, though with intent to acquire some things, if you're not clever enough to stop me. I can't tell if you're talking about masturbating or stealing my shirt, and in the latter case, I'll say again that it is my shirt, and I consider that part to be serious business. Sorry, I will not steal your shirt. I will not ambiguously joke about stealing your shirt. I will spend my next paycheck on sleeves of many garments, and then, inexplicably from your perspective, have your shirt, but not in a way that deprives you of it. Good. I'm an easy man to get along with if you don't yoink my stuff, see? I... part of me is attracted to, just not owing you anything, but part of me would have liked to not give you pleasure, inflicted on you like it was pain. But either my Dath-Ilani training assumes the other woman is also a Dath-Ilani, when it comes to reading her accurately, or I don't know the key code to your sex lock. You were making sounds that would correspond to a Dath-Ilani woman having the amount of fun I'd expect from the techniques I was using, but the training I've done for reading things like muscle tension and exact details of breathing, for purposes of pulling off the trick of keeping a woman right around orgasm without going over, and without her needing to be distracted by giving me deliberate feedback, which is another Dathalani trick I was planning to surprise you with, was reading as if you were at the same low, constant arousal level, regardless of what techniques I tried on you. Even if what I was doing was working, and I just couldn't tell, I'm not sure I can get you to orgasm at all let alone keep you in near-orgasmic pleasure for a while. If I can't tell how well anything is working, we don't have any prior protocols established for more deliberate feedback cycles. And also, I don't have a vibrating thing or any other sex tech. What's an explanation that's not, oh, I was really hoping I could just fake it? And not yet, that's Chilish girl's unreadable, which it'd now be her responsibility to coordinate everyone on that, which seems hard. It's... It's the same problem they ran into earlier, right? Keltham pulling apparently magical correlations out of nowhere because his society shelves entirely different things alongside each other. And not actually, I really dislike experiencing pleasure, which isn't even true, but feels kind of true right now. And not, oh, that was my badly behaved, unsexy body double. Why is her life like this? As few lies as possible. Only she doesn't even know what the relatively fewer lies route from here is, because they are standing in a lie minefield. 
This is the way a stupid failure who gets executed a week from now thinks, not the way that the girl, Asmodeus, noticed, thinks. Calm, focus. Good lies are personal, therefore non-disprovable. Good lies expose vulnerability, because people don't expect vulnerable lies. And because if you know what someone thinks your vulnerabilities are, you're safer, snuggle. That's on me. Not on you, I think. I was enjoying myself, but it's hard for me to relax enough to get off when I don't feel like I understand. Hand wave. What's going on? If it's safe for me to stop tracking things, it's not actually safe to stop tracking things very often at the world wound. And, uh, it is physically much safer here, but it's also very confusing. I am curious whether you'll have this problem with anyone else, but my guess now is that you won't, and it is just that I am too on edge and need to relax. The invisible, inaudible security wizard who is reading Savar's mind and laughing his head off temporarily pauses his laughter in a sign of due respect. That recovery was legitimately smoother than he was expecting Savar to pull off. He's also resolving to never ever sleep with this woman no matter what she waves in front of him. But that's likewise a sign of respect. If you wish to support the production of this AI-voiced reading of Plane Crash, please visit patreon.com slash askwhocastsai. Any help is appreciated. <laughs>